there's this woman we had this passionate relationship i mean incredible like i had a i had a 20 minute tantric orgasm with this woman at one point like blacked out everything like we had an incredibly intense relationship and we hadn't talked for like a year and i was still thinking about her and so this is kind of where the conflict and the art connects together because that's what I'm interested in. It's like, how can I turn this obsession, this conflict, this like thing that I keep thinking about, even when I'm dating other people, this person that I keep thinking about, how can I turn this into art? And so this peacock was what popped up into my head. And so this issue, I turned it into a piece of art and then the art was bought and then it paid the rent. And so why I'm saying this is because when you have when I have something going on that sucks, I could turn it into something good. That was Damien Alekshuk, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 99. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. Even if it's confusing or messy, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, even if we're embarrassed about it, we tell the truth. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You won't find any 10-day, six-step life hacking plans for anything. I'm totally over that approach, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which, warning, often means we use adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads, you won't hear any sponsor promotions. This show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. You're the best, and I'm so ridiculously grateful that you're helping me to bring more real talk and honesty into the world. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. But first, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live, the small fun in-person event series that kicks off in London in early August. 
So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Damien Alekshuk. Damien started Undam the River, where he works at the intersection of design and conflict. After years of addiction and being diagnosed with a mood disorder, Damien discovered meditation, rediscovered his love for art, and began to make pen and ink illustrations and custom woodwork with mental health in mind. His work is incredible, by the way. At age 30, he met his first art client in an outpatient mental health program, and he believes that no matter how down you are, you can make something out of it. In addition to being an artist, he studies conflict facilitation, communication, and leadership with the Deep Democracy Institute. In this episode, Damien and I share stories from our eight-year friendship. He talks openly and honestly about his experiences with addiction, mental illness, and more, including how he had his first drink at the age of 12, checked himself into a mental hospital at the age of 26, and how he now uses art as a powerful outlet for healing and change. This episode is the epitome of real talk, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Damien, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Hi, Nicole. Oh, man. Uh, You are one of my favorite people, so I'm excited that 12 seasons in, I finally get to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This is fun. Um, I was thinking this morning when I was on a walk, sort of, you know, like knowing that we were going to have this conversation today, thinking about how long we've known each other and the origin story of our friendship. So first of all, it's been like eight years, which (laughs) seems kind of nuts to me. Um, But will you tell from your perspective the story of how we met? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, So I was, uh, I think I was still living in Chicago and I was just, I got really excited about blogs. I mean, blogs were just starting to get interesting and uh, popular and I was so stoked. It was like, oh my God, there's these writers online that are just, they get to post without publishing or having a publisher. And um, I came across your blog and I just, I was in, like, I was so excited. Um, And I remember I wrote a comment on one of your blogs or one of your posts and I said, I'd eat your words with a fork. And you replied and you said something like, that was one of the the best things anyone's ever said about my writing or something like that. Um, And then, and then do you remember where it went from there? I mean, that... That was super fun. But what what happened right after that? So, okay. So my memory, we were part of that community called 20SB, 20-something bloggers. It was like this sort of like pre-Facebook group, like Ning. I don't know. It was like you ha- you joined it basically if you were in your 20s and you had a personal blog, which like you said, like that was when that was becoming like a really big thing. And I think, I don't know if it was through the blog or through that that you sent me a message, but I will say that that is still to this day the best compliment <laughs> on my writing or at least the most <laughs> interesting. So yeah, I think what, what happened was, for, so first of all, I was really flattered. And um, you, yeah, you were in Chicago and that was... 
end of summer 2009, which was a really interesting time in my life, it was sort of the height of my drinking, the height of my undiagnosed mood disorder, like a lot of sort of things happening at once, but also, to be honest, a really fun time. And I had just quit. I was a camp director for five years, and I had just quit that job in sort of like a burn it down, can't ever come back, blaze of glory situation. And I took off on a three-month trip backpacking around the country, basically staying with people who read my blog. I was like, this is, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. You know, I'm going to do this until I run out of money. And I wound up in Chicago. And um, that is, I I don't know if it was right around that time that I think I reached out to you or something that we were going to meet up in person. That was, I remember that was the next step. Do you remember that? Yeah, and then we went out and got hammered with some English dudes. <laughs> yeah, I was staying at a hostel. Yeah. And um, yeah, I met these seven English dudes. <laughs> Somehow, you and a friend came and met up with us. So our first meeting was basically me, you, a friend that was visiting, and these seven English dudes from the hostel. Yeah, and we went out and got completely hammered. <laughs> that was that yeah. story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember I we were sitting in like a... In a we were in a bar and we were in like the second floor, I think, and maybe there was ski ball or something up there. And I remember we had like one of the deepest conversations I've ever had in my life. But at the time, I was still drinking a lot till blackout. So I don't remember a word of it, but I'm sure it was really either wonderful and also completely pointless. <laughs> well, but I mean, we were both at the same level of alcohol abusing. So I'm sure we both thought the conversation was excellent, whether anyone else would have been like, this is all nonsense. Everything you're saying is nonsense. Um, yeah, that's so funny. Um, that was a very interesting time. You And that was, you had um, a cast or a boot on your foot or something. I remember you had had your foot injury. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I busted my foot playing Ultimate Frisbee. Um, I had a surgery afterwards that boshed my ankle. Um, and it kind of, if anyone is getting really geeky, basically my talus uh, doesn't, couldn't properly pop underneath my tibia after this surgery. Um, he, he went in at the wrong basically the wrong place. Another doctor went in afterwards uh, to do a second surgery three months later, and he basically said the first doctor screwed it up, and there wasn't anything that he could do. So, yeah, during the time that we were out in Chicago, I was in the middle of this period of uh, not really walking without a cane or a boot or crutches for probably the better part of, like, three years. So... Yeah, that was a hell of a time for me, for sure. Yeah, and then we just sort of over the years would go through periods of keeping in touch and then not keeping in touch and then seeing each other, you know, when we happen to be in the same city. It's just, it's funny, you're, I mean, I guess, real talk, we're just going to go there. You're an interesting friend for me because you're someone who, if the circumstances would have been different, being single at different times that I definitely would have wanted to date, and then it just never happened, and yet I'm glad that it didn't because I don't think that we would still be friends. Is that a weird thing to say? <laughs> no, no, I actually, I like the way it's turned out. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I felt similarly, and I was like, you know, it's interesting. There was one, I think right before either you reconnected with your husband or you know, current, I don't even know exactly what your relationship status is right now. Yeah, but, yeah, my husband, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. I, you know, things can happen. Um, so, yeah, I think right before either things got, you re-met with him or whatever, you and me were actually going to go 
what on a trip or something and then that happened and then it just never yeah we had a small window of opportunity that then did not it was just funny i don't know i always this is something i mean uh, i was on the fence about whether or not i was going to go there in this conversation apparently i went there right away because i see this is why i have real talk radio because i can't not do this (laughs) i'm like i guess other people want to listen to it this is something that i think is often not talked about the like the people in your life that are like your almost people and then like staying friends with them or not staying friends with them or when it's problematic or when it's not or anyway. So I'm grateful for our friendship and our conversations are always one of my favorites. And I just think it's funny that it could have gone a very different way. Yeah. Yeah. Really kind of non-traditional way of like hanging out together, like getting to know each other and going, going in and out of each other's lives. Um, Yeah. I'm stoked. And now we're here. Yeah, right. I think part of it for me, or one of the things that I really was drawn to the most and really enjoy the most about you is I feel like you come from this same place of, I don't know how to not be honest, which some people like I'm an intense person and not everyone is here for that. Like not everyone wants to just have the truth spoken to them. Right. And I guess that's fine. But the fact even like within, and this is the last thing I'll say about this topic, but even within that, I feel like we were able to have conversations acknowledging just what was true between us, right? Like to talk about something and to have it not be weird or to be able to say, this is what I'm feeling, or this is, you know, like I'm attracted to you, but this, you know, whatever that was years ago. And I don't know, I just think that there's something that's really, that's, I don't know if unique is the right word, but rare. And that I really appreciate about people who can just say, this is what's true for me, here you go, right? Like, and not, not not have to be some like earth shattering thing or not have to play mind games. Like that kind of stuff's so exhausting for me in friendships or any kind of relationships. And just to have someone say, this is what's true. I find that to be incredibly refreshing and you're really good at that. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's, uh, it might be something that I get from my dad. He's, he's pretty good at that too. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't know. I there was a point in my le- there was a, a time in my life where I didn't want to tell the truth really at all. Um and now I'm the other way and uh I like this way better. Interesting. So I can really relate to that. Uh, I mean, for me it's very much like after quitting drinking, there's sort of like a discreet point of okay, I'm going to start telling the truth more so, but was that the case for you? Was there a point where you were like, "Oh, this is something that I want to change about myself?" or was it more of just a natural evolution of growing up? Hmm. Uh, I would say it turned when I first moved to Portland. I lived in Portland for uh, about four years. And when I first moved there, I'd moved there with a now ex of mine. We'd be get, we had been together for five years. And uh, within a month or so of getting there, I we broke up. And my foot really wasn't working. I didn't have work. I didn't have friends. I had other health issues that were just like just messing me up on the inside. I mean, I was depressed. Uh, I just it was sort of a rock bottom for me. Um, I mean, I, even to top all that off, like my I had a dick injury at the time. Like there was, what? there was nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Look, at all, I'm going to learn so much about you today. So wait, pause <laughs> sidebar explain. Okay. So, um, I, my ex at the time, she had an IUD, um, put in like towards the end of our relationship. And when we would have sex, I would feel like I would like something was off. Something was wrong. I felt like I was either, hitting it or going up against it or something but like 
she was in health sciences. And so she did, I mean, she didn't think that that was even possible. And so after a while, it just got so bad that I, my dick hurt so much that I just couldn't have sex anymore, um, which was awful. Uh, and God, it, ooh, even talking about it, it's like making me shudder. Um, I, yeah. So towards the end of our relationship, I couldn't have sex. Anyway, there's nothing really else to that story besides today, whatever, July 6, 2017, my dick works just fine. And I'm very <laughs> about that. <laughs> Listen up ladies. <laughs> Shout out. Oh my God. Okay. Continue. That's hilarious. So back to where I was try- uh, going. Um, I had to do something. I, I had to do something different. And I had a physical therapist about a year before that. She was super bubbly, very interesting, very fun, always in a good mood. And I asked her, I was like, what do you do? What do you, how do you, how are you doing this? How are you so happy? I'm not happy. What, what's up? And she told me about a meditation retreat called Vipassana. And I asked her what it was. She said meditation. I asked her okay, come on, what else? And she's like, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You just have to go. And a year went by. I didn't learn anything about it. Here I was in Portland with all these issues, injury, whatever. And I decided to go. I'd never meditated before. I didn't know what spirituality was. I wasn't, I didn't know that there were things on the inside. Uh, I didn't know, just didn't know any of that stuff. Um, I kind of came from a more traditional place and so then I go on this 10-day silent retreat and it's 10 and a half hours a day of meditation uh, no screen no uh, writing no reading no exercise uh, very little food and holy shit I mean that that turned my life around that those 10 days were probably the best thing that has ever happened to me or that I've ever done Okay, so that's something that I definitely want to dig into. But I want to kind of reverse chronology for a little bit, like, and then circle back to that point. Um, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Park Ridge, Illinois, which is a suburb right outside of Chicago. What did your parents do while you were growing up? Uh, My dad was a computer programmer. And my mom uh, went from scientist to uh, human resources. How, what am I, what do I want to know? I'm always curious sort of about how people either remember their childhoods or think about it. Like, who were you as a child? Tell me about little Damien. <laughs> little Damien. Um, I, hmm, what do I want to say? Well, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect. I, I loved drawing. Uh, I loved people. I was interested in science. I was two years ahead of my class in math. And I just put all that together and I was like, oh, I want to make buildings. And I, that, that was what I loved to do. Um, I was sort of an anxious kid. Like sometimes I would have trouble sleeping and I would be like, I would like rock myself back and forth to sleep. Um, just cause I couldn't really sleep. Um, but overall, like, happy childhood. I would say, like, you know, my, my parents were great. My sister's awesome. I grew up in a nice neighborhood. So uh, overall good. 
Overall good. Okay. And so when we were talking before recording, you said something that I didn't know about you, that you started drinking really young. Will you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I had my, I remember (laughs) I had my first cigarette. It was a Marlboro Red. That was, I was 10 years old and my buddy who was nine stole the pack from his dad. And then shortly thereafter, around like 12 is when um, I first drank and then that just kind of kept getting more. I kept drinking more. I kept smoking more. I started smoking pot. Um, and that took me to college, which is probably where it, where I was the worst, where I was smoking a pack a day during the week, smoking two packs a day on the weekends, smoking pot, drinking till blackout two, three nights a week. And yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how that started. So, yeah, I'm because my story or my experience with drinking was, I mean, I didn't start drinking until basically like right towards the end of high school. It was mostly like when I moved out, right? So like 17, 18, which I think is not completely abnormal. You know, you've, you've moved somewhere new. You're on your own for the first time. Like that tends to make... I guess like make more sense. And it's funny when, when Paul, when Paul was on the podcast, my husband, um, he started drinking really young as well. And those stories, since it's like not my lived experience, I'm always really curious, like how, how did that come into your life? Or, I mean, how did drinking so young impact you? Did your family know, like, was it part of your family culture, just anything in there that you want to talk about? A couple, I'll hit it with a couple tangents. Um, Ukrainian culture, uh, I'm 100% Ukrainian, born in the United States, but my family's all Ukrainian. And in the Ukrainian culture, um, people drink. It's a big part of the culture. And me and my, like I had a group of Ukrainian buddies and we would, that's what we do. We'd get together, we'd get drunk, we'd have fun. Um, That's... this is kind of how it started. It's kind of hard to answer this question. Um, I find it hard because it's like, I'm, I'm searching this, you know, this is interesting too, just kind of as like a meta thing. It's like, I'm trying to search for a point where my, my life had like turned and I went from like kind of innocent kid to like drinking, but there wasn't really a point. Like I think now in hindsight, now that I've been you know, uh, diagnosed with the mood disorder and have gone through all that stuff. I'm sure we'll get through that in a little bit. It makes more sense. But at the time, I just kind of tried it and liked it. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think there's something wonderfully honest and real about that because it's so, it's such a we have such a desire to like spin stories, right? Like I just think that's a natural human instinct and to, to tell stories about ourselves and to look backwards and to try to make it make sense. And, you know, like to, to almost, you know, write your childhood as if you're watching a movie and like, this is the time at which things became dark or became what, but that's not, I mean, sometimes that happens. Sometimes there is like an inciting incident for different things. Sometimes it's just, Oh, I liked this. It, like it worked until it didn't, or this, I tried it and it was good. And you know, that it's, I don't know. I think there's something that's really refreshing about, well, I don't know. This is just, what happened to me or not like, here's, here's the 10 step like lessons that I learned from that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like just that it just, that's what happened. Like that's, I don't know. I like that. Yeah. I'm glad you understand. That's, that's good. <laughs> that's good that I don't have to explain any further. So yeah, I appreciate no, it. Definitely. <laughs> so did you, I mean, and I guess like maybe in college when you said if that was when it, you know, became, I guess maybe more problematic, did you ever 
Like, did you think about quitting drinking? Did anyone express concern? Were you concerned? What was your sort of like self judgment or like mental emotional landscape around those behaviors at the time that they were maybe like the most intense? So that would be during college and probably like sophomore, junior year. And I, I love drinking. It was super fun. Um, I was sort of a badass in college. I mean, like I said, smoking a pack a day and just like not giving a shit about what people thought. Uh, I was even sort of known on my campus as being just a a rebel and I loved it. Like I kind of relished in this, like, Oh man, like, yeah, people hate me and this is awesome. And it, it like, there wasn't anything bad about it while I was in it. I wasn't judging myself. wasn't like, Oh man, like maybe I should be living differently. And if any of those thoughts ever came up, I would just like stuff them down and I wouldn't look at them and I would say, no, thanks. I'm going to do something different. So yeah, at the time it, it, I mean, in hindsight, obviously I I don't want to live like that, but at the time it was great and I was having fun. Oh my God. There's so much that I, so good. Okay. Um, you just brought up something that I want to dig into more this idea of, um, like our, how our identity sort of plays into our ability or inability to make changes. Like when you were describing as, you know, being a badass or being a rebel and like really enjoying being seen that way and drinking and smoking and, do, you know, doing these things like really played into that image. And if that's, uh, for me, it was the sort of party girl down for anything, really fun, good time. Like I had my own, I guess, identity cage, right. That I didn't, didn't want to come out of. And I don't know, like, I don't even really know what my question is other than I just think this is an interesting thing to talk about that when you did quit drinking or, you know, however you want to address it, how, like, what did you have to do to sort of untangle from that identity, right? Like if we like a certain perception of ourselves or we want people to see us a certain way and making a change is going to change that identity. Like what was that like for you? Hmm. Before, before I jump into that, there was one more thing I wanted to add. Oh yeah. Uh, Tell me everything. (laughs) With with the, just like being a badass thing, it was, uh, it's just kind of clicked in my head where I still like being a badass. I still think that that's, like cool, but rather than drinking a lot and you know making stupid decisions or having this like uh, reputation like that, I think badass to me now is like being honest. It's kind of like what we're doing right now. It's like we're mm-hmm. talking about what is real. Um, so it's kind of I that just clicked into my head. I had to say it out loud, but I'll <laughs> I'll get to your question. I was out in Portland one night. And it was a really fun night. And, and me and my buddies went to this bar. It was called Lowbrow in Portland. Really cool, dark kind of vibe. I just moved to the city. So it was like super new for me to be on the West Coast. And we were drinking, we were smoking weed and kind of a normal night. I, I had nothing really super special about it. But then the next morning I woke up and I started having panic attacks, just kind of this visceral feeling of my heart beating, uh, my my thoughts going a million miles an hour and like shaking and just, I didn't, 
I didn't know what was going on with me. Um, but luckily a few months before that I had gone on this Vipassana retreat and basically the idea is to just kind of feel the sensations, my sensations, whatever's going on in my body. And I kind of connected the two. I was like, Oh my God, I'm having these visceral sensations in my body. I got to fucking do something different. And so at that moment I was just like done drinking, done smoking weed. I have to sit here and I just have to meditate through this shit because what I'm doing isn't working. Mm. And was it, I mean, obviously I don't think that it's ever easy to make a change, but was it that simple that you decided, okay, I'm done. And then you were just done at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was very black and white. I was like, okay, um, these are, I just, I just had such an intense experience and believable experience at the Vipassana retreat that I knew this is what I had to do. It was just sort of like A plus B equals C. Let's do this. So, yeah. So something that I think about a lot with my own sobriety is, and I've said this before, but sort of the idea that alcohol, I mean, or drugs or whatever, I mean, for me, alcohol, that alcohol wasn't the problem. It was the solution to a bunch of problems, you know, whether it was related to that identity or to other pieces, this idea that it sort of works until it doesn't. And when you remove that when you remove alcohol, when you remove the thing that you've been relying on for any number of things, then there's sort of this like hailstorm of, I don't know, like a volcano of things that come up that you have to deal with. What was your experience in that regard? If anything, I mean, I don't want to like put my experience on you if that wasn't the case, but removing something that had obviously been a really big part of your life and identity for a while, would that bring up for you? A couple different things. One, I was very proud and very excited about it. I would tell people that I was sober and that I didn't drink and people would be so interested and be like, Oh my God, how are you doing that? What are you doing? Like, what's what, what, and I just was stoked. I was just like, Oh my, yeah, I sit here, I meditate, I feel like this is what's going on. Like it. So on a positive side, it, that was great. And, uh, it was like a new identity. I was a new person. I had a new identity. I was this sober guy who was spiritual and meditative and, um, but on the other side of that, it was, let's see, maybe five months after I quit drinking, uh, I went on a road trip with my ex and I stopped sleeping during that road trip. And it was about three weeks of not really getting that much sleep. I mean, I'd get some like here and there and uh, I was having night terrors. I was really scared. I didn't know what was going on. I was very paranoid. And uh, my family was like trying to take care of me. And it, uh, it wasn't good. Um, I, I, at the time, I didn't know anything about mental health. So I didn't know what was if that what was was going on for me or not. I just had no idea. It was just me <laughs> terrified. Um, so I think that drinking and smoking weed and, and some of the things that I was doing was potentially like masking all this underneath stuff that either I wasn't dealing with or was a genetic issue, which I found out later I have a genetic serotonin malfunction issue just to kind of keep that and not get too scientific with it or we can, um, 
And so then those weeks ended up in <sighs> me starting to have these just like intrusive thoughts that I didn't, I didn't like thoughts that were sort of violent and like filled with rage and anger and pissed off to the point where I didn't know what was going to happen next. I'd never been in this situation before. I didn't know if I um, was capable of, of hurting myself or hurting someone else or whatever. And, um, it, it was really scary. And so one morning, uh, I woke up after trying a couple psychiatric medications. Uh, one was Seroquel, one was Xanax. And I woke up and just had this rush and this panic of like, oh my God, I am capable of doing bad shit. And I don't, I don't, I hated that feeling. I knew I wasn't going to do anything, but I hated that feeling, those thoughts, those just visceral, oh, it, oh my, it was bad. And so that morning I decided to admit myself to the mental hospital. Um, and yeah, so yes, quitting drinking was a hell, hell of a decision and a hell of a ride, especially at first. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, in my experience, and it sounds like in yours too, there was some probably self uh, subconscious, like self medication going on with alcohol, right? Like I was definitely doing that as again, undiagnosed mood disorder, that kind of thing, um, which I think is, is pretty common. But so you mentioned not having like that you didn't really know about mental health or mental illness, or this wasn't sort of a topic of conversation growing up or so where like close the gap for me between like that being the case where you didn't even really know that this was a thing and, you know, trying psychiatric medications, like checking yourself into an inpatient thing, like where there had to have been some kind of a, Oh, this is, this might be a thing. This is a thing that I could get help for. What was that? Where did that come in? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember how this switch flipped from like me just having a really hard time sleeping to going into a psych, like a psychiatrist's office. I think me and my family were just worried and we didn't know what to do. Uh, and I'm, I don't remember who suggested it or how it popped up. That's a, that's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, and of course, you don't have to remember, I just I, I that to me seemed like, oh, that's an interesting leap of I don't even know what this is, right? Or that this is something to be taken seriously too. And I guess part of the reason I'm asking and the fact that you don't remember doesn't surprise me because my my mother has pretty severe depression. And it was never talked about really when I was growing up. I don't know that that word was ever even really used. Like, obviously something was wrong, but it was just never discussed. And then I was trying to make the connection for myself. Okay, well, when did I start going to therapy and how did it, you know, like if something isn't talked about in your, you know, vocabulary lexicon when you're growing up, then it's interesting when something like comes to your awareness of, oh, this is a thing. Other people deal with this thing. I can get help for this thing. Um, and yeah, I don't really remember mine either. So I guess not surprising that you don't. Yeah, I think uh, that's kind of a scary part of mental health. Uh, I didn't, I really had no idea. I didn't know what was going on with me. I didn't, just didn't know. And, you know, I hope to anyone that's listening right now, it, it, you know, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say to anyone who's listening right now. I like guess just mental health happens when it happens. Mm -hmm. 
So, okay. So tell me the story. So you, so you decide to go and you decide to check yourself in. That's a big decision. How did that feel? Uh, well, it felt like something I had to do. And, uh, I mean, my, I was, couldn't sleep at night and, uh, my ma, I mean, oh, maybe the best person I, I know, um, was, you know, she was like rubbing my back at night, like kind of trying to soothe me, calm me down while I was sitting there just like freaking the fuck out. And, um, I just didn't want to, I loved my family. And at the time I was with, you know, a, a now ex-girlfriend and I loved her too. And I, but I can't put this pressure on you guys anymore to take care of me. So I went in, um, and oh my God, as soon as I got in there, I was like, you have to be shitting me. This is the worst decision I've ever made in my life. Like, this is terrible. Why did I do this? I signed a sheet of paper that basically said, um, I wasn't allowed to leave, uh, until the psychiatrist or until the psychiatrist said I could leave or, I could petition to leave, which would then take five days to process, then go to court, and then the psychiatrist and my sheet of paper would go to court, and then they'd figure it out. So basically, I was in here for, I was going to be in there for days. And in the state I was in, I hadn't really slept. I mean, I was terrified. I was scared. I didn't know what was going on. I was looking at the other people in the mental hospital, like now that I was actually in the locked area. Like I was looking at other people and just like judging everybody. I mean, I saw someone who was, uh, very heavily sedated and I was like, Oh my God, I'm not like that guy. He just looks like so out of it and so awful drugged up. Like I just was like, Oh, that's not me. And then I saw someone else who was like, um, kind of, and by the way, just for listeners, I'm going into some stuff that's like intense. So fed people don't want to listen to intense stuff. Okay. Um, they wouldn't, I, they wouldn't I, be here. This is, this is, <laughs> this is the home of, of let's go there. So don't, you don't have no filter ever necessary. Just go for it. Okay. Okay, cool. So I saw this guy, I saw this other woman who had been, it almost as looked like if she was like a rabid sort of squirrel, like gnawing on her fingernails and like staring into the medicine room. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't, I was like, no way, like no fucking way. I just put myself here. Like, these, this is, these are not my people. I'm not like, this isn't me. Um, but I couldn't leave. So I was in and, uh, yeah. Ooh. So did you, I mean, and maybe because you hadn't slept in the mental state that you were in, you know, this wasn't the case, but did you have any like, tangible fears or concerns before going before signing that sheet of paper? Uh, yeah. Well, all I knew about mental hospitals was the stuff I saw on in movies. So I was scared that, you know, everything that happened in the movies would happen to me. I didn't trust anybody. Uh, I didn't, I, I, I just, yeah, I was just so scared. Yeah. I was terrified. Um, and combative and angry and like, I mean, I was keeping my cool, like, I, I'm going to give myself credit here. I was, I was definitely keeping my, for what was going on inside of me, I was keeping my shit together as much as possible. <laughs> and so for whatever reason, that's a skill I have. So that, that's good. Um, but the, it, 
do you mind if I go on? About no, the, go, about go, the well, but one question I want to ask, how old were you when this happened? I was 20, 25. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Keep 25. Going. Now I'm 31. So six years ago. Um, so in the hospital, I met this psychiatrist who he prescribed me Seroquel for sleep, Lexapro for antidepressant. And so I started to try these medications. Uh, they were, they weren't really working. And I know now antidepressants take a while, but Seroquel is something that kind of, it's supposed to like, it's like a tranquilizer. It's like, all right, like you have to get to bed. Here you go. Um, and I remember on the second or third night, there was a sit-in psychiatrist and he prescribed me, I told him my symptoms. I was like, I can't sleep. This is really hard. Da, 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 da. And he prescribed me Haldol and Haldol is like a super intense drug. Um, it's classified as an, uh, antipsychotic. I didn't have those symptoms at the time, but he gave me this drug. I wasn't sleeping. I didn't know what else to do. So I took it. And I swear it was like a chemical enlightenment. Like it just took away every thought, every feeling in my head. It was like it emptied my head. I'd never felt anything like that before. And it, on, the, on the inside, I felt like, okay, this is maybe doing something. On the outside, I was like basically like that person that I described when I first went in the mental hospital, just like totally sedated and drugged. I ended up getting a second dose of that right before I went to bed. And I mean, that stuff's supposed to knock out a bear for like 10 hours. And two hours later, like I'm up, I'm awake, and I have this horrible pain in the middle of my chest, like in my heart, horrible pain in the middle of my head. And I'm like, holy fuck, what is going on? I'm dying. I think I'm dying. I know I'm dying. I'm dying. And I remember (sighs) probably laying there for half hour, 45 minutes, whatever. And just like in this state of like, holy shit, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I'm like, I got to get up. And so I get up and I sit on the end of my bed. Um, and I look and I had set up a card the night before one that my ex had given me. And it was, I don't remember exactly what the quote is, but it's like right before the, the, the caterpillar became a butterfly. It was in its cocoon or something, whatever that quote is. Um, but it was on this card and I was like, okay, like it kind of gave me a little bit of strength. I was like, okay, like I'm in this situation. It's fine. Like I got this. And then immediately after that, all the strength was gone. (laughs) And I had, um, just these very visceral, like suicidal thoughts. And I hated that I had them. I knew I wasn't going to do it, but I just, they were so intense and so close to me that, um, I, I just, it was really hard. And so, Basically, what I did was I paced the hospital for probably like four, I'm guessing like four hours. And uh, after those four hours, it was just like, shit, okay, I got to tell somebody. I have to tell someone that this is like, this is going on inside of my head. I have to tell someone. And I went to the therapist and I said, hey, like I'm having these things going on inside. I did not want to say the word suicide. I just didn't. And I was like, I'm having these thoughts, these things. I'm not going to do it. It's really hard. And she's like, okay, what, like, what kind of thoughts? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I, like, I'm not gonna, and she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, well, there's suicide. And as soon as the word came out of my mouth, she started writing a report 
I was just like, oh no. Oh, like this can't get any fucking worse. Like now I'm getting a report. Like, oh my God. And I was like, no, 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 please don't. She's like, no, I have to report this to the psychiatrist. So she went, reported this to the psychiatrist. I go into the breakfast room and I'm sitting there like just defeated. Like I can't fucking win right now. And this guy comes up to me and he's this like Clint Eastwood kind of guy, like in his late sixties. And he's like peering kind of at me. Um, he had this reputation where he just didn't sleep. Like nobody, I don't know how he even was still alive. <laughs> he just <laughs> did not sleep. And he comes up to me and he's like, Hey kid, like what's going on? I was like, I told him this story and he's like, Ooh, you showed him your cards. I was like, what? And he's like, ah, you can't, you can never show him your cards. And then he just walks away. And I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, like, I fucked up bad. Like, I told him everything. I'm going to be in here forever. I'm going to be in here forever. I'm going to be in here forever. And as soon as I got on that thought track of I'm going to be in here forever, something flipped. I, 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 I just, I was like, oh, I'm going to be in here forever. Like, oh, okay, cool. Like, this is my life now. Like, great. Like, got it. All right. So now I'm like going to be in the mental hospital. Like, okay, cool. Like, this is my life. And I started walking from room to room and asking people like their story and what's going on with them. And had they ever heard of meditation and what like, and everything flipped the, the guy, the guy who was sedated, the woman who was, you know, with the fingernails, like, I became one of them and they were my people now and I loved it. I fucking loved being in there and I <laughs> brings a smile to my face. I just, I loved being in the hospital after that. I mean, it was, it was incredible just to hear people's stories and, and I mean, like God, Nicole, I could go on and on, but there was this guy who had been arrested for uh, heroin possession and he went to jail for two years and he survived in jail because he pretended that he was like a disciple of Jesus for like two years. And I was like, I mean, this dude was beautiful. Like he's a beautiful man, the kind of beautiful man that would go into a jail and just get destroyed. But he, he, he just pretended, he pretended he was a disciple. And and I got to be in the mental hospital with this guy. I'm like, I'm fucking honored, man. You're awesome. Like, this is, I just, oh. Yeah, okay, so. I'll pause there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I could could and would want to listen to this all day. Just, I love listening to your stories. But the thing that's coming out for me so powerfully from what you're saying is that in order to get something out of the experience. And we'll talk about that. I'm curious, sort of like what the day to day was like, what you feel like you learned or gained and, and obviously something, but in order to even get there, it's like you had to go from, I don't know, sort of judging yourself from being in there. That's that internal dialogue of, you know, I'm better than this. I'm not like these people, which we do, I think in so many situations, right? Like that we don't want we just other someone. Well, I'm not like that. It's not that bad. Like we want to hold on to some, again, it's the identity or the ego. You know, we want to make ourselves feel special or, you know, my shit's not that out of control or, you know, whatever. I think it can come up in a lot of different situations. And I definitely have done that and still do that and don't love that I still do that. But it's, that has to fall away 
in order to do anything, like to make real connections with with other people, to be able to appreciate, you know, people whose lived experiences are different from yours, to be able to even make progress and growth on your own. Like you have to get to the point where you're not so attached to this idea of yourself as like special and better than others. And I think that's, I don't know, that like really hit me with the story you just told. Mm. Yeah. I I agree. <laughs> I agree. And then sometimes it's something that we can do consciously and sometimes that shit just like hits hits me. So yeah, that's another thing like a more like I kind of said before like a meta theoretical thing where it's like can I make that happen? Does it just happen to me or is it kind of both? So you know, from that point on, so first of all, how long were you in the hospital? Six days. Okay, six days. A lot happened in six days. After you sort of had this switch of, you know, I'm going to enjoy being here, I'm going to, you know, or maybe not enjoy, but, you know, hear other people's stories. What what was the day-to-day like? I'm, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is not just your, ex- I mean, your experience, of course, but I think this is the type of thing that, like you said, people only know it from movies or unless, you know, they are themselves, they themselves or, you know, a loved one has been through it. I think there's potentially a lot of myths and misconceptions. So, you know, maybe you could talk about sort of what maybe some of your misconceptions were and how that was different from reality or just what was the experience like of, of being in, in there? I was really lucky. I went into a hospital that uh, had a good structure and from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m. there was classes. We would learn about cognitive behavior therapy and meditation and art therapy. And if from that standpoint, it was really good to have structure and to say, I'm going to be at this point at this time. Uh, we all took our medicine at the same time. We all ate at the same time. So we had free time at the same time. So I know it's a very serious subject, mental health, but it was a little like summer camp. Like they were like, all right, here you go. Like this is the shit you get to do at this time and at this time. And um, yeah, that was great. I met some really incredible therapists in there. And yeah, I mean, like I said, I was lucky and I've also, yeah, I've made a lot of friends through this kind of mental health network and some people aren't so lucky. Some people have 72 hour holds where they're just in a room alone and God, speaking of like maybe not the right thing to do someone to do to someone when they're going through some shit is like put them alone in a room for three days. Like, so it's all over the board. It, mm-hmm. There's, there's good hospitals and there's not bad. There's not good hospitals. And one of the things that I want to do is to, to fix that is to, design hospitals to design systems where people can come when they're in those states and maybe get lucky like me and and get into a situation where they can get better, like for real, get better. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the time frame because on one hand, I would assume that those six days were really intense. And on the other hand, there's a part of me that goes six days enough time to actually like learn and gain stuff. So I'm curious just on your thought about the timeline or when you left, why you left or, you know, what you were sort of armed with that made you feel more comfortable walking out than you did walking in. Um, six days for me was enough. 
six days for me was enough to gain kind of control of myself again. I remember my psychiatrist kind of checking in on me and saying, you know, hey, are you still having these thoughts? And um, to be honest, I lied. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not having those thoughts, even though I was. Um, But I just... I took a page out of a Clint Eastwood guy's book <laughs> and I decided um, I have enough control over my life now. I, get, I can decide when I'm better. I don't need someone else to help me decide when I'm better right now. And if I have to lie to get out of here and to start my life outside of this hospital, then I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. What did you do next after leaving the hospital? I went back to Portland. I did an outpatient program there. So a lot of times people do an outpatient program after an inpatient one to kind of like lubricate someone back into society. And I, so I did an outpatient program. And at the same time, I was translating my grandfather's World War II memoir from Ukrainian to English. So what is ongoing treatment or mental illness management, or I don't know, whatever terminology you want to use, what does that look like for you? Or what has that been like, you know, since that time of leaving the hospital to now? Uh, It's been up and down. uh, But currently, I see a therapist uh, once, about once every two weeks. And then I see a psychiatrist every once a month. And for psychiatry, like, I mean, there was a point where I was on four different medications and I wasn't sure like what any of that well that's an exaggeration I was having a lot of trouble figuring out which ones were doing what uh, but I wasn't really sleeping like it was really hard and then there has been some points where I haven't been on any medication and I've been sleeping fine so I kind of ebb and flow right now I'm on uh, two medications and one for sleep and one for antidepressant and I simultaneously love that they are kind of, they allow me to sleep at night, which is great and be functional. Um, because I think, you know, unfortunately there is a, is a pretty heavy stigma attached to psychiatric medication. But for me, it's just kind of like, this is what works for me right now. So, and I'm also lucky I've had good psychiatrists too. So, That's from a therapeutic medicine standpoint, that's what I've been doing. But then also there's getting out into, into the woods and being alone. Um, there's swimming. I, uh, will pound out my thoughts into a typewriter. Sometimes I will, uh, I, I meditate every morning. Uh, I try to eat very simply and, I also, oh, this is super cool. And I also am part of a meetup group here in Oakland. Uh, It's called uh, Not Alone. And it's a depression and bipolar meetup group where we get together once a week, once every two weeks, whatever. And we either sit at a coffee shop and hang out or we go sailing or we, um, like I had a a birthday party uh, two months ago and a bunch of them came over like, that's super cool. So fun. <laughs> my, when, 
if I'm going to give out any advice, it's find other people who are going through some shit because that's one of the most helpful things for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I'm not great about doing that. So that's a good reminder for me personally. So uh, this might seem like sort of a strange pivot, but it's been on my mind to ask you about not, I don't know that we've ever talked about it, but just I'm curious on what your take would be. I remember the first time that I went to therapy was, okay, maybe not the first, the first time that I have like a good recollection of it was at, um, I went to NYU and there was sort of a health wellness center and every student got, I think it was 10 free counseling sessions, right? I think that's pretty common um, at on college campuses. And that was my first experience of therapy. And I remember having a conversation with um, a, a guy who lived on my floor in the dorms and somehow it came up that, you know, he had asked if I wanted to do something or they were all going to do something. And, you know, I mentioned no, because I have this therapy appointment. And um, he said something. I don't remember what it was verbatim, but it sort of was along the lines of like men don't do that or like that's a, the, like, oh, therapy, like talking about stuff like that. That's like a female thing. And I, I'm not again, I'm not like remembering it perfectly, but it was something very gendered about it. And I'm curious sort of on your I don't know, feelings, thoughts, take on, I don't know whether like toxic masculinity is the right phrase, but just if that was something that you ever encountered or felt or felt like you had to, to deal with, um, in seeking treatment. Is that like (laughs) a really weird topic? (laughs) No, no, no. First off, if someone said that to me, I'd say, fuck you, man. Don't even try because that, when someone says that, at least for me, I don't even think that's about therapy. And I don't think that's even about being a man. That's just like some kind of insecurity or something or whatever. So for me personally, um, I simultaneously also have to deal with that voice inside of my own head. Um, it kind of goes both ways for me because like therapy- it is sort of part of the culture. Some, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's not. I mean, obviously these things have a lot less stigma than they used to, but I think, and again, like I'm not perfectly remembering the context and maybe I'm making it sound more blunt than it was, but it definitely stuck with me that there was something in this that like, it was a gendered thing that like men suck it up and like, don't get help for things. And I felt like that was thinking about it since then. It's just like, that's damaging for everyone, that belief system. Yeah. Yeah. So this, um, so this is interesting. I'm glad you're you're bringing this up because uh, I study conflict facilitation, and what we do is we kind of explore some of these types of like either roles, gender roles, specific roles, uh, uh, roles amongst people uh, of different color, whatever it is, and yeah, the the role of like hey, I'm a man, uh, I whatever, watch all these movies where the man kind of like, there's, he doesn't go to therapy, he's strong, like he saves the day, he's, the, he's like macho and he doesn't need other people, he's kind of a lone wolf and like there's some, there's some good in there. Uh, I don't think that, that it's good to use that in a judgmental way. Um, but when I, because I have those, same feelings, those same thoughts come up. And sometimes what that means for me is like, you know what, just put that away and go to therapy. It's fine. Like what's the big, just go. And sometimes I use that energy from that feeling of like, I can do this on my own, uh, to actually do something 
on my own. It might not have anything to do with therapy. It might be like, oh, well, maybe it's just I want to do something on my own right now. Maybe there's something I want to do alone. Maybe there's something, there's a project that I want to do that's really interesting. So the reason that I tie all this together with the conflict facilitation is that when an issue comes up, when a role comes up, when something judgmental comes up, whatever, I try to kind of drop the words of whatever that is and just use the kind of umph, the energy, the whatever's behind that to create something new. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, So when you say conflict facilitation, what does that actually mean? Like, what are you studying? Uh, I... God, it's such an exper- experiential thing. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, how do I explain this? How do I put this like in a little box and a bow? And um, me and the think tank that I study with, we try to figure out how to let conflict come out and say, like, okay, this is here. Let's not cover this up with passive aggressiveness. Let's not like mm-hmm. just put this away. Uh, let's actually see what's in the room, feel what's in the room, what's going on. Let's talk about issues. And it's incredible. It's, it can be, it's very nonlinear too, which is something that I'm very interested in. And God, it, you know, I thought about this before we were going to have our conversation and I was like, how the hell do I explain this? (laughs) Yeah. So it is so hard is there an to, example maybe that you could give? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Good question. So one of the things that I struggle with is a sort of um, like like posture, like bad posture is something that I'm like, okay, like, come on, straighten the back, like put the shoulders back, like engage the legs. Okay, cool. The idea behind this conflict facilitation is that maybe my body's trying to tell me something. Maybe I'm maybe just straightening out and going into a good posture isn't exactly like everything that I'm looking for, everything that I need. So what I will do is I'll exaggerate or go into that posture. And if I'm like leaning over or kind of like leaning my, like I'm kind of leaning my shoulders over to the side right now, I'll kind of follow that feeling instead of fight against it. And for whatever reason, following that, body movement, that feeling, maybe a video would be better for this, but following that gets me to a different place. Um, I start to think in a different way. Maybe right now I'm like curling up in a ball, (laughs) like on my ground. And I'm thinking like, maybe there's a creative project in this posture that's interesting to me. Maybe I want to call someone who I haven't called in a while. Um, Spontaneous solutions pop up when... I follow these things. And so that, that, that would be an example. So I've worked with people who have like eating issues, depression, anxiety, um, creative blocks. And I kind of just take whatever's there and, and work with it and use it and see how I can. Yeah. Is the heart of it leaning into the thing, like not resisting the thing? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so the, it would be lean, like lean into the thing and then also use the resistance as well. So it's kind of like exploring both, (laughs) which is where a lot of times where conflict comes in, it's like, 
all right, there's this issue that I can lean into, but I'm also saying like, no, like, fuck that. Like, I don't want to lean into anything. Like, I'm good. And exploring both of those two roles. And sometimes that's good to do with the therapist because then the therapist can be one of those roles and then you can switch. And uh, that'll sometimes unravel an issue or a conflict in a way that to me feels kind of sustainable and interesting and gives direction. And um, yeah. Yeah, this is, it's interesting. And I understand why it's difficult to explain. I'll be curious, you know, as you continue to study this and go like, if you wind up having other really good examples or things that come up or things you want to share, you know, we could always have a round two or talk about it again. I feel like the, the heart of what you're saying, or at least what's coming through for me. And so I don't know if this is what you're meaning, but sort of what I'm taking from it is, I don't like the power of just like letting what's true be true. And if like if that's leaning into it, if that's accepting that there is tension, if that's working with the tension, you know, like just working with what exists, like start, you can't do anything without first, like just letting what's true be true or letting what's there be seen. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Okay. I have, a, I have a good example. And, uh, so I was working with this woman and she was having, um, she was having body issues and she was struggling with her weight and she had had uh, a family member really like get on top of her because of it. Um, and it was really hard for her. And the way that she was describing it, she's like, oh, I have this weight issue. I hate that I have it. I don't want to, like, I know I should love my body. I should love it for the way that it is, but I hate my body. And it sucks. And as I'm sitting there listening, I'm, I'm thinking, I've never been, I, I, I don't know what it's like to be a woman with body. I just have no idea. Um, but what I heard in her was like, she doesn't like that she hates her body. And so I said to her, I was like, well, what if you're just, what if you just hate your body? What if that's like, what if you're okay? Like, instead of fighting against hating your body, what if you just hate your body? And it was like a light bulb went off in her head. She was like, oh my God what if I just hate my body? Like it was almost as if she's like, Oh, I don't have to listen to society saying like, like, Oh, I should love my body or it should be great. Or, Oh, I should be so proud of whatever my curves or like, she was just like, Oh, I just hate my body. Oh, okay, cool. And so she, it, there was like a baseline that she had to start at that was accepting something, accepting that accepting was not necessarily the, the way to go. Yeah. So, yeah, it gets tricky, but no, yeah. No, I mean, I've experienced that too, that it's, you know, I feel that way a lot of times with depression or, I mean, I've you know, I feel like that with any emotion or like state of being that we like collectively or culturally label as negative, I feel that way with jealousy a lot, right? So then not only am I in pain because I'm feeling jealous or angry or disappointed or depressed or whatever, but then I'm upset with myself for feeling that way. You know, you should be past this. Haven't you done enough like personal growth work that like you shouldn't be feeling jealous, right? Or so then not only am I feeling the bad feelings, I'm also feeling the bad feelings of being upset with myself about feeling the feeling like that doesn't help anything, right? So it's to even if moving past it is a goal, then or if it's not, you first have to just not be upset with yourself for feeling the way that you feel, which is, I think, a lot easier said than done. Like, of course, 
that's, I mean, a cliche, right? Just own your feelings, let yourself feel how you feel. But in practice, it's really difficult to not judge yourself for having, for experiencing things that you feel like you should be past. Almost back to, you know, you sit walking in first day in the hospital. Oh, I'm not like this person. I'm not like this person. You know, oh, I'm not someone who's petty and jealous. I'm not someone who has a short temper. I'm not, like all these things that we don't want to be true about us, but that I think are just fundamentally true of everyone at some point. I don't know, it's just so funny to like the mental gymnastics that we do, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Um, so I wanted to circle back to talk more about meditation because I think it's really interesting to, if I heard you correctly, that your first experience wasn't, you know, I'm going to sit on the floor for five minutes at home. Like, was your first meditation experience, I'm going to go on a 10-day retreat? Yes. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, that's, I, I guess, not surprising given what I know about you, and I would probably do the same. But so again, the day-to-day experience, like, what did you think it was going to be like versus what was it actually like? Uh, I went into it with very little expectation uh, and not really consciously. I just didn't know. And I think I was just too depressed to even care. I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to go. And uh, so I went and the day-to-day was, yeah, 10 and a half hours of meditation kind of broken up throughout the day. The first one starting at 430 I believe, in the morning, and then the last one ending maybe like 9.30 or 10 o'clock or something like that. And so there were like one and a half hour to, I think, two hour chunks. Maybe one and a half hour was the biggest one or was the longest one. And we would sit there and we would listen to audio tapes of this guy. His name's Goinka, and he's dead now but they just have the tapes and the video. And um, although they're a little outdated, I got the gist of it. And I, yeah, then it was pretty cool. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I hesitate to say any more about it because I went into it not knowing what it was. And I think that was a great way to go into it. Okay, so maybe not saying more about the specifics or the logistics, but how did you feel when you were there? Oh, my God. <laughs> you asked such good questions. I, I was all over the place. I had never been away from that many things that I was so comfortable with. I had never so... I mean, there were some days where I felt just like this agony of like, oh my God, when is this going to end? There were some days where I was like, wow, like, oh my God, I'm sitting here in a field because it was like on five acres in Southern Washington. It was beautiful. There was nothing else around uh, where I'd watch a deer like knock an apple off a tree, like 10 feet from me. And for whatever reason, deer weren't scared of people there which was incredible. So I had these amazing experiences with nature, like, oh my God, this place is unreal. And then there were, um, oh, we were separate, the men and the women were separate. And so like on the first retreat that I went on, I mean, I like fell in love with this woman who was on the other side of the room. I couldn't look in her in the eyes. I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't interact, nothing. But I just like, fell in love anyway. (laughs) It's just like, oh my God, she's incredible. 
Um, I, there were some meditation sits where for the whole hour, hour and a half, I couldn't even focus on anything that they were talking to me about. I, I wouldn't even remember sitting there. So, um, then there were moments of peace where I was like, Oh my God, this is wonderful. Is, is I'm that I, I've never experienced something like this before. Um, there, there was, Oh, there was one meditation where I didn't go to the meditation hall because I had just this like raging hard on that. I couldn't, there was like nothing I could do. I wasn't going to like, you know, I wasn't going to masturbate while I was there. I was like, no way. Like that's against the, I'm not doing that here. Like no fucking way. So there was like trying to like hide a hard on while I'm like trying to meditate. Like, real talk like, about meditation retreats. That's like the most real thing you can. <laughs> oh my God. I love you so much. Oh God. And then the, the, mo- the kind of coup de gras or whatever that word is of the retreat was the end of the retreat. And on the last day I had this moment of, I sort of had this VCR flashback of all the things that I had ever done uh, wrong or like hurt anyone or whatever, cheated on someone or um, got pissed off at someone, what it, it treated someone like shit, whatever it was. I had this VCR kind of flashback in my brain of all the times I'd ever done that. And then this rush of like, I don't know if it was empathy or whatever the feeling was of like, oh my God, I think I feel what those people feel when I was a shithead to them and I just bawled and bawled and cried and just like had a puddle in front of me and I cried for like 15, 20 minutes. I thought I was done. Then I went outside and I saw the horizon and it was as if I'd seen it for the first time and I bawled again and I that quote of like, I felt like the weight lifted off my shoulders. Like I really did. I felt like I was like 10 pounds lighter. Like my shoulders just fell. And yeah, that was, that was the moment for me where I was like, Oh, I don't want to lie anymore. I don't want to cheat anymore. I don't want to, you know, mess anyone else's life up anymore. I don't want to screw my own life up either. And then again, was that just how it was? Like, was it you just made that decision and now, I don't know, you like never made any mistakes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not mistakes, exactly. but you know, okay, no, no, that's, that's too simple. But okay, well, this leads into something that selfishly, I, it's funny, even if we weren't recording for the podcast, I was going to call you this week anyway, because I'm like, I have things to discuss and you're in this regard, one of the people that I always want to talk to. I've been thinking a lot about something that I did without knowing that I was doing it that like really has put me in a tough, not a tough situation, but okay, let me just explain the thing. So I had this realization, May 1st was my six year sober anniversary. And then, you know, my 32nd birthday was in June. So this like May, June is always a time of sort of reflection for me in general. And I had this realization that because quitting drinking, because I didn't have any relapses, you know, yet it, it was just, I stopped drinking and I stopped drinking. It's such a clear before and after point. And it was really easy for me to create this before and after story paradigm where the story that I have been telling myself is that, you know, 
I was a bad person when I was drinking and I made, you know, everything that you just listed. I made these bad choices and I hurt people and I was self-destructive and I cheated and I did this, that, or the other. And, you know, but all of that, it was, it was like, that was before. And then I quit drinking and like, I'm good now. Or like, I, maybe I'm not describing it well, but it's so easy to put into a box. Like, here's who I was before. And then here's how I am now. And to the point where you wind up putting who you are now on a pedestal almost, which I don't know, doesn't leave room for the nuance of, everything that happened when I was drinking wasn't bad and everything bad that I've done in my life wasn't because of drinking and I still do make mistakes. And I don't know. So I'm sort of wondering how that paradigm plays out for you. Well, I held on to that first part for a long time. The, um, you know, I'm good. I don't do anything bad. And, uh, I, I know that's kind of an oversimplification. I'm, I'm, but that's, I think, I think, I think I kind of get the point across, but I had that like identity and, um, then a couple things hit me. One was that, um, I try, I tried to drink again. I had another, I had a drink and I was like, Oh, okay. Like, got it. I had a drink. I can have this drink. And then I, I was like, all right, fine, whatever. And I like, kind of enjoyed it and I didn't have to have another one and that was it and I was like you know what maybe I could like keep doing this and so then I had one maybe like the next month and over a period of like 10 months or something maybe I had like nine drinks or something or whatever and on that ninth one I felt as soon as I had the first sip of the drink, I immediately on the inside felt like super angry. I was just like, Oh my God, I'm so pissed off. I fucking hate this. And I was like, you know what? Maybe this just isn't really isn't for me. And I knew I already knew that, but I, now I know it in a different way, like in a softer way, in a more subtle way. Um, and I also have given myself more room to screw up now where like two days ago I was super stressed out and I ate a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and had a cigarette like I'm not happy that I did that but I did Mm -hmm. and I think it's okay I think I'm okay and through this too I'm also thinking about like I'm gonna hurt people's feelings And I keep hurting people's feelings. And if I try not to hurt anyone's feelings or my own feelings ever, I'm not going to live my life. I'm not going to fuck up. I'm not going to learn from those fuck ups. And so I've given myself like a 10%, if we're going like scientific leeway of just like, you know what? I might accidentally say something that's sexist. I might say something that's racist. I might say something that's, that comes right out of my mouth and immediately I say, holy fuck, I can't believe I just said that. Like, I am sorry. Um, and it sucks. And I'm just, it's hard to talk about this because I feel like I'm like, just, I feel like the devil himself speaking these things right now. But I, I, I want to say this because I think it's okay if we fuck up and then we figure it out. Mm-hmm afterwards um yeah 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah. I feel like there's, and again, there's no, there's no simple solution because the the opposite, you know, side of that coin or other end of the spectrum. For me, I could see that you know, uh, grace around making mistakes turn into like get out of jail free card to just go do whatever. Like it's not that either, right? That it's like not not being like, well, I'm going to mess up, so I might as well do all these terrible things. It's again that all or nothing. Like, well, I had you know one drink, I might as well have twelve or whatever. Of course, this is the way my brain works, but no, I do. That's sort of what I've been waking up to the last couple months is like this. I don't know, this story that I've been telling myself is not sustainable. Like that it basically, I feel like I sort of white knuckle, like brute forced my, not even quitting drinking, but just like my entire life after that, right? Like that, like I wouldn't let myself go out or do things or have fun. I was always like, I was like so fearful of making a mistake or or engaging in any of the behaviors that, you know, before Nicole, previous Nicole, whoever that person was, you know, this like bad party girl person, and then you just you just aren't living your life, right? And so th- this like kind of black and white dichotomy is not the answer. And so it's I don't know. It's just nice for me to hear someone else talk about like, well, yeah, I'm going to make mistakes. Like sometimes I'm going to say something that, like you said, it's going to come out wrong or it comes from a place of like speaking from privilege, and you get called out, and that's good, and you make mistakes, and that's good, or you hurt someone, and it's not necessarily that hurting someone is good, but I don't know. There's something really powerful about giving ourselves and each other just like the grace to mess up and to not ha- like that you, you are not the worst thing you've ever done. Right. I'm so happy we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, 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 it's yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. It's no, just that this, this sort of like before and after story, I, I, I wrote about this, I guess, uh, not recently in the time that we're recording this. I, for the, the folks who fund the, the podcast on Patreon, I send out a weekly email called Notes of Grit and Grace, which is basically just, here's my heart this week, here's what I'm thinking of. And, you know, I I wrote all about this, this idea that like when we go through a change, anything that could be like in a Transformation Tuesday hashtag, right? Like whether it's, a, a you know, a body change, you know, we get super in shape or, you know, we become vegan. Like obviously that's something that I've gone through, quitting drinking or, you know, quitting a corporate job, leaving the nine to five. Like it sets up this before and after thing where like, look at me afterwards. Like, I'm so good. Everything's so great. And, but you're on this pedestal that like, eventually you're going to fall off. Like you just are. And then, then what? Like it's, it's again, the transferring of identities, like how we keep ourselves stuck by overly identifying with, I don't know. I like was really getting off on this idea of like, look at me, like I'm so good. I'm so like morally, whatever. And like, yes, I've done personal growth work and I would say arguably I'm a better person than I was, you know, six years ago, eight years ago, but I'm not perfect. I'm human and like very messy and like make a lot of bad decisions. And like, what if that's fine? I don't know. So I'm, I have no answers at all, but I'm definitely in that space heavily right now. Good, good. That's, that's, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this. This is, uh, something that I wanted to talk about with you. Um, but I did, I forgot that I wanted to talk about it with you. So (laughs) this is what's cool. And I'm going to, I'm circling back to like you and me and like, we there they you know when we met we were pretty heavily drinking we decided that we didn't want to do it anymore we've gone through personal transformation stuff now we're like talking to each other about maybe not being so high on that like personal transformation totem pole or whatever it is and um i just yeah i don't want to get too gushy but like i just i appreciate that that we're still we still talk about this type of stuff like that's awesome that's so cool to like know 
you before you know you you whatever quote change and then after and it and then kind of circling around and um yeah 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 no i but that there is something interesting in that you know when you make a big change i think often it's common to lose people like there's definitely people that i'm not that not friends with after having quit drinking just because it any number of reasons right like either we weren't a good match anymore or my change was threatening to them or we didn't have anything in common but i think the relationships that do make it through are always are always really interesting and yeah again not to get too gushy but you said something so now i get to say something and then we can move on but (laughs) i i have a very vivid memory like if i were to think of sort of the story arc of our friendship like probably the most meaningful thing for me It was summer 2013, which was also a really rough time for me, mood disorder wise. And I had some, I was having, I guess what I would now classify as a mixed episode, right? Sort of depression and hypomania, those symptoms together. And I had this really strange experience where I... I wound up at the beach, like not in the middle of the night, but sort of. And like I had this, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm sure you remember what I'm talking about because you were the one that I called right afterwards. But I wound up at the beach and I was having this like, you know, couldn't stop crying, emotional outpouring, like wading out into the ocean, like thinking this was, I don't know, going to like, I don't even know how to describe it. I had some like an intensely emotional experience where I like went to the beach and like tried to have this like, I don't know, cathartic thing. And it was just, I was so in this mood episode and I didn't even know like what to do. And you were the person that I called and talked to. And I know you just have this gift of being able to hold space for people in a non-judgmental way that for me, for me to be able to call you and say, I don't know if I'm depressed or if I'm manic, but I was just at the beach sobbing in the ocean and at night, I don't really know what to do. And you just talked to me and were there for me. And it was, might seem like a small thing. It's just one phone call, but it really, I think about it all the time. I was really glad that you called. I, yeah, I mean, I love, I love talking to you while, while you were there. I mean, it, it was, it, yeah. Uh oh! I'm returning the gush. Um, it, it was just <laughs> just that you that you that you called me that made that made me feel really good. I was like, oh wow, this I'm you called me like that's that's great. And then just that you were in this space that was I don't know vulnerable to the word or what you already described it that that you that we could talk at that in that place or or when we were in those moods or whatever. Like that's. Yeah, uh, just another like <laughs> public service announcement. Find other people who are going through shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, agreed. And then just, yeah, having the person who's like, this person's on my, I mean, speed dial isn't a thing anymore. I don't, whatever, like cell phones are basically speed dial. But to, like for me to say, like, I'm in a lot of pain. And I mean, you just heard, I couldn't even articulate what the story is that I'm trying to tell because I don't even know just I went to the beach and it was weird in the middle of the night and something happened right and (laughs) and I have feelings about it and I can't be alone and need to talk to someone who might possibly understand or who can I go to that's not going to be judgmental like yeah if if my wish for everyone is that they have you know at least one person that they can call and be like some shit is going down like discuss right like that that's I don't know it's yeah so okay gush fest over moving on to another topic Tell me about the incredible art that you are making these days. Like your basically Instagram and website is just like art porn that I love. And I want to hear about the art that you are making. Thank you. Um, I, 
so right now I run a design business and I make uh, custom pen and ink illustrations as well as custom woodwork uh, from boxes to succulent planters to vegetable planters. And I'm so excited about it. I, uh, like I said earlier, I wanted to be an architect when I was a kid, uh, but then I started drinking and we already went through that story. Uh, but after all that was, after all that was behind me, uh, my, my kind of passion and interest and, um, kind of curiosity for design came back. And it was funny the way that it came back too, because now, um, when I was in the mental hospital, there was a, there was art therapy and I drew this picture of a straw breaking a camel's back or whatever, like in pastel. Cause that's how I felt at the time. And someone actually was like, Oh my God, I love that picture. Like, can I take it home? And I was like, sure. Sounds good. Um, I had been in another outpatient program where there was art therapy and I was making art and people were really interested in like, excited about it and I was like you know what I'm gonna you know Father's Day is coming up like I think I'm gonna I'm gonna do something for my dad and so I did this pen and ink drawing where it's like pen dipped in India ink uh scare one of the scariest mediums because if you fuck up like it's game over like you could have hours of work just gone and um and I think minimum for me one of it's like a 12-hour job so you could be an hour like nine and it's just you screw up and, and I'm, I'm done. I have to start over. But anyway, I make this giraffe drawing for my dad. And at the same time, I was in an outpatient program. And someone in the outpatient program was like, can you do one of those for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. Here's how much it is. And so I did one for her. And then another person in the program came up to me too and was like, Hey, could you do one of those for me? And what, you know, same process. And from then I was like, wait a second, like this is actually something like people are paying me to do this. Like, okay, got it. And so since then I've just kind of built, I don't, I, I guess a business from that. Um, so it's really exciting. It's fun. It's interesting. It's hard. It's tough. There's a little bit of agony in there too. It's kind of all of the above. How do you, I'm always curious about the intersection of art and money. How do you decide on the pricing for your work? So for me, I, my most recent project was, okay, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. First, I decide how much money I want per year. And then after that, I decide how many hours a week I want to work. And then I kind of just divide that number by that number and say, okay, this is how much I need per hour. And then I take that number per hour and I work on an art project. And however many hours I take, I slap that price on there, multiply, and then that's the price of the piece. And what was cool about the last piece is that 
I, I made this pen and ink peacock and which is like bananas beautiful by the way like I can I mean I should include links in the show notes I'm not just blowing sunshine up your skirt like you know I'm just like not like an overly nice but it's so it's so good I don't know like pe- this when someone has a kind of talent that you don't even remotely possess it feels like otherworldly like I don't understand I don't understand how you I don't understand how'd you how, I don't <laughs> anyway keep going sorry <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's where, so this pen and ink peacock, it's like eight and a half by 11, full color, like took 38 hours to finish. And it's, it, I, I, I submitted it into an art show. Uh, and it was in art, this art show that was about animals and plants. And I was so stoked about this peacock. I was like, this is getting into the show. Like, of course it's getting into the show. And it didn't get into the show. And I was super pissed um, because that, like I, I needed to sell this piece of art in order to make rent. And, um, so my ma said someone at her work was interested in the piece. Uh, and I sent it to my ma's work so the person could take a look at it, but there was pretty much no way she could meet the price because I, at the time I wanted $25 an hour at 38 hours. It's like 900 and something dollars or whatever. And she wasn't, the person wasn't interested in that price, but when my ma opened up the the box that my art was in at work, someone walked by her desk and was like, what is that? And she was like, oh, my son made it. And he's like, can I buy it? And she's like, oh, no, well, it's kind of like spoken for. And he was like, well, how much? And she said, you know, 900. And he's like, I'll give you 1100 for it cash right now. And she's like, done (laughs) so um so it was one one of the coolest things about this project is like okay so yeah like i I know i have this artistic talent and i use it and it then this pays my rent but this specific peacock came out of me unable to get the obsession of an ex-girlfriend out of my head like there's this woman we had this passionate relationship. I mean, incredible. Like I had a, I had a 20 minute tantric orgasm with this woman at one point, like blacked out everything. Like we had an incredibly intense relationship and we hadn't talked for like a year and I was still thinking about her. And so this is kind of where the conflict and the art connects together. Cause that's what I'm interested in is like, how can I turn this obsession, this conflict, this like thing that I keep thinking about, even when I'm dating other people, this person that I keep thinking about, how can I turn this into art? And so this peacock was what popped up into my head. And so this issue, I turned it into a piece of art and then the art was bought and then it paid the rent. And so why I'm saying this is because when you have, when I have something going on that sucks, I could turn it into something good. So that's what I try to do. Um, that's, a, that's, it's, a, that's actually such a beautiful story. You know, before when you were giving examples of, you know, the conflict or letting what's true be true, but then use harnessing the energy for other things. That's such an, a good example of that, right? That, Cause I could see, 
I don't know, the adv- the advice going another way of, you know, you're obsessing about this woman or you can't stop thinking about her or whatever, you know, people just, well, just let it go or just this or let's dig into it more. Let's talk about it more. None of which I guess is bad advice, but to be able to say like, this is, I'm not going to try to deny that this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm feeling. These thoughts are here. I have to do something with them. Otherwise, I'm just going to obsess myself to death over it or like try numb out from it, right? Which is when you wind up reaching for those other things. But to be able to just, I don't know, like look at it as it's all energy and let me just like put this into creating something beautiful. I don't know, there's uh, that I feel like that's like an aspiration for me to be able to like get into that space. That's I don't know, it's such a good story. Thank you. And so here there's just more to this that's so interesting too is that um that's kind of a uh, a evolution of like my therapy is like at first I looked at things and I dissected kind of like you said and I like okay like what's going on here is it something from my past is it something that that's going on right now that stuff's really good um but then when that sort of petered out then I switched to this way of of maybe not switch cuz cuz I liked how you talked about it in a different podcast. Like it's a tool. So now I use like this tool in this way and I, I love it. And the thing you talked about also with using the energy of something is that we made up words. (laughs) We fucking made up words. Like that's a way we communicate. And so if I have a thousand words, like, going through my brain at one point, it's all just made up fucking shit that all supposed to mean something. And I know this is getting kind of out there crazy, like, but I'm kind of that. So whatever, I'll keep going. The feelings inside, at least for me, are just more tangible to work with than thoughts that are going hundreds of miles an hour or whatever. So I try to go with the feeling, then use the feeling and energy to do something. So yeah. Yeah. So when you, I don't know, look ahead or daydream or like what's your sort of big dream with your art or career in general? Do you have one? Yeah. I'd love to build a, um, like a mental hospital or a, uh, sort of center or uh, psychiatric place or whatever. Um, I, right now I'm learning these smaller skills of designing on a smaller scale, but that's the bigger scale that I want to get to. And, I'm really excited about that right now. I'm um, talking to different architects and learning about different firms and whether that's the direction I want to go in or kind of building it on my own as sort of a contractor. I'm still working out the details and I bring that up because I want to make sure that I don't, that that there is a gunkiness to like trying to figure out the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But in general, I, yeah, I want to, I want to build bigger and, yeah, that, that's kind of where I see where I'm going. And then I would love for um, the art and design business to um, I don't know, just, just keep growing and keep, I guess that's, yeah, yeah, that's what I'd like. I love it. So something that I have to ask you about when, again, when we were emailing, you know, just potential topics to talk about today, you said something that I don't understand at all that I have to ask. You said a possible bonus topic, the Portugal castle story. What is that? What did you mean when you said that? What is the Portugal castle story? (laughs) That's that's like very cryptic and interesting. So go. (laughs) Portugal castle story. So uh, I went to Portugal. I, this was at the height of my like spiritual like interest, and I wanted to be enlightened. I wanted to not 
be have human sort of feelings or experiences anymore. I just wanted to be in that permanent state of enlightenment forever, and I felt I was ready. And so I went to Portugal and I to find this teacher that apparently was this already, and that turned out to be a disaster because it just didn't it. It wasn't what I thought it was. I wasn't who I thought I was. I fell off a pedestal of spirituality and kind of hit the ground. Luckily for me at the time, when I hit that ground, I ran into two Portuguese farmers and they were like, hey, you look like shit. Come live on our farm for a month. And I was like, done. So I went to this farm and I learned about plants and watering and taking care of animals and gardening and transplanting a tree and all this wonderful stuff that just like brought me back literally into the earth. And after this month, I went back to uh, Lisbon and went to a hostel. And one of the things I wanted to check out that was close to within Lisbon was this incredible statue of Poseidon. I mean, you, you've, You've seen, you know, my my work and my design work. Like, I love good design. Like, it just makes me so excited. And so there's this statue of Poseidon at this castle, this Portuguese castle. And it's just beautiful. It's like, if I remember correctly, there's like serpents and shit coming out of it. And he's just like badass. Like, I'm ruling the ocean. And I was like, I got to go to this thing. And this was one evening. And during that evening, I run into this Irish guy and... He's, uh, I just didn't really like him, honestly. Like, I was like, ah, uh, like, we don't really vibe. This doesn't really work. And the next morning, um, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to go see Poseidon. This is great. And I run into the Irish guy in the morning and I'm like, all right, you know what? All right, bring the Irish guy. And so I was like, hey, man, like, come on, like, let's, let's go. Let, let's go to this castle. He was like, okay, cool. And, and along the way, um, on the train. We got along swimmingly. He was great. We had an awesome time. It was super fun and uh, totally changed. Another one of those judgment deep thingies or whatever. Um, and we get to the castle. We walk up this huge hill. We get to, we go through all these corridors and I'm so stoked. And we get to Poseidon, like this statue, and it's not there. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I look through this little hole, like in the sheeting, and I could see his eyeball. And then I realized the shit's under construction. Like the whole, it's just being redone. I can't see the statue. I'm so devastated. I'm like just mad. This is why I came here. And I was just pissed. I was like, fuck this. And I'm walking through the castle with the Irish guy. And we're like having a little bit of fun, but I'm just generally disappointed. And as we walk up, we turn the corner and the Irish guy, he looks at me and he looks over and he points at a guy and he's like, I think that's the president of Ireland. And I'm like, come on, like, that's dumb. Like, no way. And I look, and he's this kind of shorter guy with white hair, and he kind of has this, like, Irish accent or whatever. I'm not really good at accents. And he, he's like, let's go talk to him. And I was like, you got to be, no way. And we went over, and it's the, I brought the Irish guy and the Irish president in a Portuguese castle. I'm like, you got to be shitting me. And one of the most incredible things about this man is that he cared about every single like word that I was saying. Like he was such a warm and wonderful and interesting. And he talked to me as if I was almost as if like I was his own son 
or something. Like just an incredible person. I had never met someone with that much compassion and interest and responsibility. And it was just so cool that I got to meet him with an Irish guy. <laughs> that was awesome too. So um, yeah, I don't know how he is politically or whatever, all that other stuff. I know that's a whole different story, but just he was an inspiration to me to kind of really listen and to learn how to listen. That's an excellent story. Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) From like going to the farm to Denmark. Okay. That's see, there you go. Look at all these things that I've learned about you. Um, so uh, seriously though, we could definitely do a part two, a part three. There's, I'm like holding back other questions that I want to ask you because I know we're coming up on time, but, um, so uh, this is a good place, I think, to, to start to wrap up. But the way, as you know, that we end these are with what we call community questions. So it's nine questions that the Patreon community, the awesome folks who fund the podcast, want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So your answers can be as rapid fire or not as you want, but it's a fun um, and interesting mix of questions. So are you down for that? Yes. Okay. So the first question is about routines and there's so much focus on morning routines and what people do in the morning, but can you share what your evenings look like? How do you typically spend your evenings? Evening. Um, so I will, I'm trying to picture my evening. So what I do is I'll usually try to get off the computer an hour before bedtime Um, just because sleep is something that I struggle with and that helps out, that helps my brain like stop running like a million miles an hour. And then I will take a lovely hot shower. I'll take my medication after that. And then after I take my medication, I found that just taking my medication and then laying down in bed is a little, there's too much time there. I don't like just like laying in bed and staring at the ceiling. So I will stretch and do squats uh, before I go to bed. And then by the time I'm done with stretching and squatting, I will jump into bed. And if I still have a lot of energy, I will punch my pillow 500 times because it's kind of like taking an Ativan, honestly. And then hopefully by then I can fall asleep. Wow. All right. What do you most want to be known for? Mm two things, design and, um, and mental health, uh, just being able to make a positive impact on both of those things. And also that I'm just like fun. <laughs> like I, I would, I, I want when people think of me that, you know, maybe not everybody, cause I don't, it'd be, it would suck. I've already tried to get everyone to like me. It's really hard to do. Um, but just people smile when they're like, Oh, Damien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's fun. What's the last thing that made you feel totally awestruck? Like a moment that stopped you in your tracks, left you at a loss for words, but in a great way. Hmm. Wow. That's a tough one. I, hmm. I don't know. Maybe circle back. I, I, I don't, nothing comes to mind. Okay. Also, nothing has to come to mind. That's fine. Um, If you were given a large sum of money to try and fix one problem in the world, which problem would you choose and what's one thing that you would do? Oh, uh, architecture for sure. Uh, I just think that, um, you know, I love 
I love therapy. I think it's wonderful. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's an hour a week in the other, however many hours I'm in an urban environment. And I think urban environments really affect people. And to be able to use an ungodly amount of money to change urban environment, um, cleaner, um, maybe figure out a way for the ground to be softer, whatever it is, um, that would be, that would be it. And then the first, the more specific thing I kind of talked about earlier would be to like, uh, put it towards psychiatric institution. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best gift you've ever received? Best. Or it doesn't have to be best, like a really good gift that comes to mind. Hmm. Oh, uh, for a housewarming gift, my ma got me a huge canvas, just a big blank canvas. I mean, it's like three feet by four feet, something like that. And right now I'm like painting a, like a kind of a futuristic or whatever landscape on it. So I'm excited for that. What's one habit that you've been successful at adopting over the past couple of years that you're proud of? Meditation. Yeah. Morning meditation practice for sure. What would you say is your biggest fear or a big fear that still comes up for you? Mm. Being liked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I don't know if that's one that, uh, yeah, it's just one that I struggle with for sure. So the next question is about books, which I don't know, two to three books, any genre, any type of book, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Mm. Spiritual wise, I think I am that by Nisargadatta Maharaj is really cool, really good. Um, It's intense. It's about spirituality and enlightenment um and i read it probably six or seven times when i was trying to understand what spiritual stuff was um it but like i said too it's an intense book for sure so i go back and forth with wanting to recommend it um but i'd check it out uh, another one is ernest hemingway the uh, old man and the sea I love that one because he spells things out very straightforward and it helped me understand this kind of a more straightforward way of telling stories, even though my stories probably aren't a lot of the time. And that, yeah, those two. Okay. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take. What would you love for people to do? I would say no matter how shitty, no matter how hard, no matter how tough life can be, um, there's something, there's, there's, my, my, my belief, my hope is there's gotta be something small that, that you can do to, to, make your day a little better, whether that's call someone or meditate for a minute or take a breath or 
whatever it is. I don't have a specific instruction. It's more just like hope. I mean, there are, you know, people out there who are on multiple pages of medication or who haven't gotten out of their beds in weeks or whatever it is. Like you're not alone and, uh, you got this and no pressure either. Yeah, <laughs> It's a lot of pressure too. <laughs> What's the best place for people to find you, your work, say hi online. Do you have a favorite way to connect? Uh, yeah, my website is undamtheriver.com, U-N-D-A-M, the river. And my favorite social media is Instagram, and I'm at uh, Damiolek, D-A-M-I-O-L-E-K. Okay, and I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much. This was such a good conversation. Thank you, Nicole. This is great. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I definitely could not do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Taryn. Hi, Taryn. Hi, Nicole. (laughs) So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions, if you are ready for that. I am excited and ready. Tell me how you usually spend the first hour of your day. Um, the first hour of my day is normally actually spent, like I wake up and then I just sort of lay there waking up probably for about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, morning is not my time to shine. And then I get up and do like the morning stuff, like the teeth and the going to the bathroom. And then, um, I come into my kitchen and I drink a pint of water with a splash of apple cider vinegar in it. I chug it. And that, and then I just pack all my stuff in a bag and leave. That's probably an hour. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I definitely am a morning person. And yet I like the slow, like, I don't like to just like get up and get out of bed, right? Like I read or I'm in bed or whatever. And I, I oftentimes do the apple cider vinegar and warm water at night. So look at that parallels. Very good for you. What are you totally obsessed with lately? Oh my gosh. You're going to think this is, this is funny. It's silly. Um, I am obsessed on, okay, so I don't do a lot of social media. In fact, I only do Facebook and Instagram and I never get on Facebook. So right now I'm obsessed with an Instagram account called Prissy Pig. Um, So in today's world, I needed to find something that was just light and joy and fun. And this is an Instagram account of four pigs who often dress up to celebrate holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's amazing. (gasps) All right, well, definitely going to, I'm going to be looking at that and following that. (laughs) That's amazing. I also just found Rhea the Naked Birdie, who is a bird that sadly has a a feather disease. So it's legitimately a naked bird. Um, But what happened is people from all over the world send her outfits. <laughs> so it's this little tiny lovebird that's completely naked. Um, and she puts on these little outfits and I guess, so I guess light and, and, and joyful for me is animals dressed in clothes. Listen, that little story about the bird, that like gives me hope for humanity. Like that, those are situations where I'm like, people are the best. Like what are people doing that they're buying or making these little outfits and sending it for this bird? That's fantastic. I know what I'm going to be looking up the second we're done recording. <laughs> um, I'm going to link you on my one of my favorites for that one. Okay. Okay. Yes, it's, definitely. It's, Send it to me. That's amazing. 
Um, <laughs> what is the strangest or most random job that you've ever had? Um, strangest or most random job? Probably um, I was a 911 operator and fire and police dispatcher. It was oh. also, I think, my most favorite job. Favorite why? Um, so there's a few reasons. Uh, one is I loved that you were doing, it's a huge multitasking thing. Like you have four computer screens, three microphones, um, two keyboards. I mean, you just have a ton going on and you might have, um, someone on a 911 line talking to you in one ear and then in your other ear, you're, his, you're listening to a police officer sort of maybe report their status or something like that. And you have to be doing it all at once. You have to be taking um, details down from the 911 call, but you also have to make sure that you're updating your police officer's status because it's always very important to know what they're doing. Um, so I loved that all that was happening at once. And I also loved that at the end of my shift, I could... <clears throat> just put it away like it was done mm-hmm. you know like my work day was done and you do a handoff and someone else picks everything up that's in process whereas like now I sort of work in the business world and my work is is never done you know I have I get home at night and I think oh I need to take care of that tomorrow you know and yeah. and it just it's, you always carry it with you not to say there weren't things that I don't carry with me from my time when I was doing that, but they were few and far between. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I totally understand. That is interesting. Wow. This is, I love asking that question because I mean, even just the outros for the season have gotten so many diverse answers. It's so fun to hear, you know, people's most random work thing. Um, if you have a free afternoon, what's your favorite way to spend it? Uh, oh, gosh, reading. Yeah, me too. I hear you. I think reading, honestly, is my favorite activity. Like, there's no better feeling than reading a book that you just, like, cannot put down. Yes, I totally agree. And there, sadly, is many a night when I will have to read until 2 or 3 a.m. because I have to know how the story ends. Yeah, that's why I can't read fiction before bed because I won't, I literally won't stop reading it. Like it's, I have like very, I have to have strict boundaries on myself when I read fiction because I basically will quit my entire life until I'm done reading it. Well, I have some... Um, excellent, excellent book titles or suggestions um, if you want any. <laughs> I, I like hesitate to say yes because I'm like, no, I can't quit my whole life. But tell me one. What's one that you're like, you won't be able to put this down? Oh, my God. Can I give you three? Yes. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> oh, these are just these are just the um, these are just nonfiction novels. Okay. So one that's amazing is called Codename Verity. Um, there's another one called Last of the Breed. And then there's a series called the Maisie Dobbs series. All of them are just so great. Okay. So great. Okay. I haven't heard of any of them, so I will have things to add to my list. There you go. When I want to <laughs> not be able to put books down. I love it. Yeah. And those aren't even like my favorite. <laughs> those are my favorite books. They're just such good ones that you have to read them. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the last question, what's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Um, I think, gosh, that's a very hard question. Um, 
I think just because of the experiences that I have gone through in my life, one of my sort of dark places has revolves around money. Um, and so, for example, right now, I'm not necessarily living my passion because I'm making the choice for security, financial security over sort of like that joy in your life. And I don't necessarily think it's the, well, there's no right or wrong, but you pay, right? There's a cost one way or the other. Absolutely. financially, but it's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with money conversations and I feel like the future of the show, the show is going to include more of that too, because I'm the same way. I just, it's funny how something like money that literally touches every single day of all of our lives is still something that people don't talk about that much. Yeah, and it's it's another one of those things where you compare your insides to someone else's outsides. Definitely, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, I love that. Um, so you are a member of our wonderful Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a small and powerful pledge to help fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and what's been your favorite thing since joining our little community. Um, I decided to join your show, join your show, support your show because, um, I just, the work that you do is so wonderful what you put out in the world. And I think everybody needs to hear that they are not alone. And you talk about these topics, you do the real talk and everybody needs to hear it and everybody needs to have the conversations, which you have um, sort of helped me to do. I've had a couple like legitimate real talks with some friends and, um, and I think my favorite is the weekly grit and grace notes. I st- I love your writing, so I still love those. Thanks. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do is to send you guys notes every week. That is fun for me. Um, and it makes my heart very happy that you are having more in-person real talk conversations. I love that. That's such a good side effect. So thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 